Good evening. Since I can see most of you, some of you in the back will have to look between heads, but I think I'll stand down here tonight. Uh, because of the time we have, I want to get right to the point. I re- What you have here, you've probably never seen before, and you have never touched it. And no one has been foolish enough to lay it out like this in a church, something so valuable that you can literally touch. Usually you're ten feet away from it, behind glass, everything. We sang the one song tonight, How Great God Is. How do you know? How do you know how great God is? How do you know who God is? We know it. We can't from our reasoning. Like Plato said, if there's more about the gods than our minds can tell us, the gods must reveal it. In other words, God must reveal who he is. And he did that. And he revealed it through his scriptures, the Old and New Testament. But the question is, are they reliable? Could you hold the Old or New Testament in your hand and say, what I have today is what was written down 2,000 years ago? Oh, I'm going to show tonight, just for the Old Testament, if we had another 32 minutes or 23 minutes, I would share with you the New Testament with some of the stuff I have in the back room. But I want to show you here with physical, historical, physical evidence that you can touch, that I can hold the Old Testament in my hand and say, I can trust that what I have is what was written down. It has not been changed. It's incredible. What you have here is a revelation of God's word that he revealed in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, especially the Jewish people. Or referred to, what's another word the Torah is referred to as? Anyone? The Pentateuch. What's another phrase it's referred to as? You all know it. The law of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Penta five, Tuch, study, five, and the law of Moses. When God revealed his word, he wanted to make sure it wasn't lost. What you have here is a 72-foot, over 500-year-old, totally intact scroll. Should have been destroyed. Should have been buried years ago. But it came from a very small, poor community on the Polish-German border, and they didn't have the money to have their own scribe. So they couldn't purchase a new scroll. That's what makes this one of the three rare scrolls in the world. It's because it should have been destroyed. It wasn't, and it was used the way it was. It's got built-in things that no other scroll has. It's got a 1,600-year history built into this scroll because it was copied from a 1,000-year-old scroll. And it's made of parchment or vellum, which is animal skin. The New Testament, for the most part, was papyrus from the papyri read. This was from the skin of animals, but they could kill no animal for the purpose of making a scroll. They couldn't. It was against their law. They could only use an animal that had been killed for food or natural death. Then they could use the skin. And it went through a whole process. The side you look at is where the skin was, kind of like this right here. It was one just like this, the skin. And they soaked it in lime water, everything else, and then they put dog dung on it and massaged the dog dung in. Why? So it smelled bad. No. The reason they did it was it softened the, the hair to come out easier when they scraped it. Uh, the dung, a pretty cheap way to do it if you had a lot of dogs. But uh, this was only one side they could write on. When they did it, 
If they prepared it to use for a Torah, then it could never be used for anything else. They were that strict. And when a scribe would begin to do the work on a scroll, it had to be a professional scribe. And it usually came down through generations of families. Just to do one scroll, now think of this, took up to three years. I wouldn't have the patience to do that. I stand in a microwave and say, hurry up. Three years just to copy it, not to prepare it, to copy it. He had to memorize 4,000 laws. Memorized. There's 4,000 regulations, the way you do something exact to guarantee the accuracy of it, built into this 72. I got another scroll at home that's over 100 feet. In fact, this one here is over 100 feet. This is a very rare, smaller scroll uh, like this. But this is over 100 I mean, it would go from one side to the other side of this room. Um, but they'd have 1,000 laws and regulations to guarantee several things. One, they want to make sure they copied it right, accurately. Second, they want to make sure they read it accurately. Third, they want to make sure they interpreted accurately. And you know, for those three things, they literally build in physical pieces of evidence and regulations to guarantee those three things. Right into a scroll. Now, first of all, they thought, which is true too, that if they could create a grid. When you look at this, you will not believe this was done by hand. Especially with a (laughs) quill with a feather from a turkey. Or a goose. Usually they use goose. Like that. All this was done. You won't be able to believe it. All done by hand. It's perfect. And it's in a perfect grid. Why? They felt if they had a perfect grid, instead of like the way we write, kind of up and down, you know, and extended lines, that they felt with a perfect grid, it'd be easier to accurately read it and copy it. And you know, that's true. When you read in a grid or you read without a grid. So when you come up here, there's magnifying glasses there. You can see down here. Now, if you're under 60, you can see it with natural eyes. But there's a whole line of little tiny pinholes. Like that right there. You know why? That was part of their grid. They would take, like this was uh, a cloth um, section, and they would put pins in, perfectly lined across from each other. You can see, maybe, yeah, right there, you can see the lines. And they would put the grid in, and then they'd take a thin piece of thread tied between them. And then they would take glass or a doll, like a doll, butter, wooden butter knife or silver gold or something. They would never allow metal to touch this, base metal, like iron steel. Why? Because weapons were made out of that, and this is sacred scripture. And so they could not allow uh, base metal to touch a scroll. So they'd take a piece of glass or a, a bone, a sharp bone, and they would make a, they would score it. I mean, folks, you look at any, you look at that little one there. It's perfect scoring. Think how long just that took. A hundred feet long. Forever. But they knew, and then they would score it down so they would start and end exactly with a line. Now, if they went over a line, it was no big deal, but they tried not to. I found maybe five or six in the entire length of the scroll that either Cut up, stopped a little short, and went a little long in a line. But you see, back then, they um, didn't have hyphens. Uh, well, they had them, but they didn't hyphenate a uh, Hebrew word on a scroll. And so what they would do, and um, you can see it up here, like right here, 
Where is it? Right there. They would take and compress the word. If they got to the end of the line and it was kind of a long word, maybe they'd take the last two words and compress them like that right there, pushing them in so it ended exactly with the grid. Or, like right here, they would take and extend a line. And they would extend it out. They would take the last letter and extend it out right to the edge. So they would have a perfect grid. Now, when they wrote this, they used a special type of ink. Now, most people teach they use charcoal. They didn't. Charcoal would destroy the, the parchment. What they did, they used gall ink. What in the world is gall ink? It's by the forerunner of, of uh, is it Brook Brothers Ink or whatever it is? That's clothes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they took these gall nuts. Now, what is a gall nut? I had some here. I have no idea what happened to them. I had them, but about a week ago, they disappeared. They're very hard to get. Uh, they're a little tiny nut that, a, that an oak tree produces when a wasp stings it. And you know how if you stung, it's, your body starts to swell it up and, and create a bump around it. Well, that's what a tree does. A wasp will sting it and lay its larvae, and the tree will react to it and start building a casement around the larvae, and it becomes a little tiny nut with little thorns or pricks on it. Out of that come some of the best dyes in the world. Out of it come some of the best inks and many parts of modern medicine. And they like put it in a in of a sock, smash it up, boil it in certain types of water with sulfate and other in it. And then they'd add a little bit of soot. Why? To darken it. Otherwise, it only come out a dark gray. This is a dark brown. Uh, on purpose, they did it because of where it was copied. But it would it dark, the soot would darken it. And then they start to write. When they wrote, they could do nothing from memory. Three hundred four thousand eight hundred five letters. They could do none from memory. You say, what do you mean memory? Well, if I was copying this from memory, Aleppo gall nuts, I'd write Aleppo gall nuts for making ink for making ink. They couldn't do that. Out of 304,805 letters, they had to do it letter by letter by letter. A, A. They first would sing the word Aleppo. A-L-E-P-P-O. Aleppo. Aleppo. Letter by letter by letter. Every letter had to be done in an ins a distinct way. It could not be traced, just like this here. Every time this letter was written, it had to be done exactly that way. Now look at these letters of the Hebrews' letters. Just rush right through them. Hello. Yeah. Look at these. Look at all those. It had to be done in a certain form, a certain way, everything. It could not vary from it. It would... I. It could probably take up to 10, 12 minutes to do one letter. Because they had to thicken it, made sure it was real thin, everything. And out of the entire bit, no letter could touch. Now, if a letter touched, they could correct it. But until they corrected it, they couldn't use a scroll. If a letter touched in writing the name for God, they could never use a scroll. And just the word Yahweh, it's, like 1,400 and some times, there's probably 3,000 names of God in the first five books. And they could never touch. This is why. They'd be writing the name for God. They so reverenced this. They would not write the last letter of the word before the name for God, like Elohim, Adonai, etc. Why? This is the reason. They wrote with a quill. 
And the ink, they would have a special ink when they write the name for God. They'd put it in, and the ink would kind of cluster right at the bottom. And so if you touch down, it could smudge or blot. And if they did that with the name of God, they could never use it. Could you imagine two and a half years, you're almost done, and you blot the name Elohim? Justifiable suicide. That's when you drink acid. And so what they would do, they'd put it in the special ink, and it'd only make the, enough ink for one day. I mean, you can say, come on, make it for a whole week. Think of how much time it takes to prepare it. But they found out this. If they only made a little bit of ink at a time, just enough for one day, then the ink lasted so much longer before it would fade by years. And so they learned just the process. So they do all that extra work. So what they would do, they'd put it in, maybe shake it, and then they'd write the last letter of the word before the name for God with a quill. And it would, then it would clean off the ink in the bottom, and then they would write the name for God. Whew. Why? Because they so reverence the Scriptures. When you look at this, the first letter right here, the first letter for the name for God, for the Torah, is extra large and darkened. Why? It says nothing to a Gentile. To a Jewish person, it says everything. A Jewish person starts to read this. They look there. They stop. This says to a Jewish person, prepare your heart and mind. You are about ready to read God's sacred message to you. Whew. That's kind of like Selah in, in Psalms. A little bit kind of like it. Stop and meditate on this and realize what you are going to do. Now, remember in Matthew, it says this. Oh, no, no. Right at the beginning, about the third one in or fourth one in. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You have a living example of it right here, tracing it back 1,600 years. To make sure they had it accurate, they did several things to emphasize the importance of what they were writing and the importance of what you were reading. For example, they would um, take letters throughout here. You can see some of them. Right here is one. There's one. Uh, there's various ones here that are extra big, like a lambda, others. Why would they do that? They did that because that was a very important passage. And they wanted to make sure that you stopped and you thought sincerely about what you were reading. Because God had something special to say to you right there. So they do a little extra big letter. Or they would do um, a space, right, like right here, there's a whole bunch of spaces within the text. And that space within the text would say, this is very important. So you go along and says, now stop, go back over what you just read and study it. Whew. What other literature does that? See, they wanted to make sure you just didn't copy it right or read it right, but you understood it right and you had prepared your heart for it. What other literature does that? And then, for importance, within the text, they would do extended words. These are at the end here. They're along here. They're all over here. Uh, here's a bunch of them. They would, do, they would extend a letter of the word. Again, that was for emphasis of importance. Meaning, boy, think, this word right here. Now, what is God saying to you there? Now, the next one, no. 
And they did all kinds of things in there to emphasize to you the importance of what you were reading. For example, with the, uh, I'd have to unroll it more. See, this thing can roll way out to there. Uh, unroll it more, you have the um, Song of the Sea, the Red Sea. And it's in a special format, this right here. And every time it's copied, it must be in that format. Exactly. Why? They believe this is so important, a message God has for you. They want you to read it by phrase, by phrase. You read it, and then you go down, and then you jump up a little bit, and you study that, and then you come down, study that, and you start over, go up. They wanted to make sure that you not only copied it right, you read uh, it right. They would also build in small lettering. Like right here is a whole about 60% of a line in real small letters. That was two things. One saying there's a possible ominous meaning to this word. Or there is just possibly a spelling error. But you know what? A scribe, if he knew it was a spelling error, could not correct it. They had to bring in special other scribes that examine it, study the back for hundreds or a thousand years, whatever, exactly what is the spelling here. Then they could correct it. There's probably in this whole thing, I'm doing off the top of my head. Make a note that I study this and see how many there are. I would say there's at least 60 errors that were found here. He said, oh, that's horrible. No, folks, that's wrong thinking. You don't think of how many errors there were. You think of how many times it was corrected over against other, any other literature of history. It's not how many errors there were, but how many times they found those errors and corrected them to be exact. And then remember in Matthew, Jesus said, Neither a jot nor a tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. Neither a jot or a tittle. Can anyone here tell me what a jot is? What's a jot? Anyone? Boy, the rest of your life you're going to know. The jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like a little comma, but it has a certain tail on it going down and like a hair going up. It had to be done in exact way, with the same width, everything. That is a jot. Then what is a tittle? Can anyone here tell me what a tittle is? Anyone? In the year that I've owned this, I had no one tell me except woman woman who was Jewish. A what? A what? Big what? No. Very good. You tried. I think with all that gray hair, you'd have got it all right, buddy. Anyone? What's a tittle? No. Well, no, but you might do an accent mark like it. What? Yes. It's like the little crowns at the top are singular. A tittle is a little line going up that's curly cue. It has no meaning. It's just for decoration. There's nothing significant if it's there or it's not there. But in the 4,000 regulations, certain letters had to have certain tittles, etc. Now, with this one here, this is a different scribal tradition than this. So, like here, it has a crown, which is five tittles going up as a crown. 
It's on the first letter on the Elohim for God, etc. This here only has one tittle because it's a different tradition that they developed in, in preserving it. But Jesus said, neither the jot nor the tittle will pass away. Now, what that means is that the ink will not flake on a jot or tittle. That's what it means, that the ink will not flake off and it will disappear. Um, I really don't know if that's been taken literally or not uh, on there, but you can trace back tittles on this and jots for about 1,600 years on just this one scroll. You see, God wanted to make sure we preserved his word. When you came in the name for God, Elohim, right there, throw that up there. It's such a beautiful, boy, when you look at it there, it's gorgeous. With Elohim, it was one of the names for God. We call it a name for God. The Jew would look at it as a, and, um, not a name, but a um, title. No. Yeah, a title. Uh, judge. An activity of God. Judging. That's what Elohim means. El, judge. We say it's a name for God, and it's okay. It is a name for God. But the Jewish mindset, it's a title, not a name. But... See how beautiful that is? Look at the exact tittles, everything on it. And there's a yod or a jot next to the last one on the left there. There's three tittles and then the little jot there. That's the name for God, Elohim. They can correct any other part of the scroll except for the name for God. Any name for God. They could not correct it. And they couldn't use the scroll. When it came to the name... Can anyone here tell me what the tetragrammaton is? You've all seen the word, maybe seen a print, and you kind of, whew, it's a big thing, kind of jumped over it. What, what, can anyone here tell me what a tetragrammaton was? Tetra for grammaton grammar. For grammar. It's the, name, it's the title given to the name for God that has four consonants in it. Y-H-W-H. And it's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters. Now, why such a designation for that? Because that is what they say. Well, when Moses went up and met with God, and God revealed many things to him, the time he said, look, if I go down there and tell them this, they're not going to believe me. Who in the world can I say sent me? And remember what he said? I may. The Tetragrammaton. Yah. Way sent you. That's a tetragrammaton made up of four consonants. This only has consonants, no vowels. No scroll will ever have vowels in it. All the other books they would do, right? Everything else, yes, after about 900 AD, but never, because in uh, Leviticus it says, never add two or take away in the Word of God. And they believe if you add a vowel, it's adding two, the Word of God. So they'll never put a vowel in there. It's just constant line. You'll see it, constant line of consonants. And, uh, oh my gosh. So what they would do, they would write the four consonants, sometimes in Old Hebrew or Aramaic or something else, but they'll never pronounce it because they believe Yahweh is the first name for God, and you're not in the first name basis with God. So a Jew would never pronounce They didn't even know how to pronounce it because it could only be pronounced in the Holy of Holies by the high priest. So most Jews didn't even know how to pronounce it. So whenever they came to the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, everybody knew what it was, but they would say Adonai, another name for God. But then they came along and added vowels and other things they, uh, and scripture and all. Uh, when Tyndale came along, didn't know what they had done. 
Because here they had the consonants, one name for God, Yahweh, the vowels, another name for God, Adonai. It made no sense. But they'd always say Adonai, Adonai, because they believed their lips are so unclean for the breath to literally pass their lips to even say the first name of God, Yahweh. And so when Tyndale come along, they didn't know what the Jews had done. And so the word made no sense. They knew it was a name for God, but they had no idea what it was. So he said, how do you write this? How do you pronounce it? Yah, Jah, Ah, Adonai, Jehovah. Jehovah! That's how we got the name Jehovah. A misreading of the Tetragrammaton. I say to my Jehovah Witness neighbors, your name is wrong. But that's how we got Jehovah. That's why a lot of translations now are going back. And it's so funny. They're going back and put Yahweh in the place of Jehovah. And these Christians are writing, Oh, it's so horrible. You're destroying the Word of God. No, they're purifying it. Get their head screwed on straight. Because it should be Yahweh. And that's how we got the word Yahweh. And they ended up for many of the times that Lord is used in the New Testament because Adonai was Lord. So when they did the Greek translation in place of Adonai, the Tetragrammaton, they put Kurios in Greek, which is Lord. And that carried over into the New Testament. And many times when Lord is used in the New Testament, it should be Yahweh. That a Jew will not pronounce out of reverence for God. So here you have the entire thing. How, what did God give to the Jews to do? To make sure they were exact in the entire Torah. Anyone? What would you do to preserve it? To know it was accurate after three years of copying. What would you do? I'll tell you what God did. He built into the Jews a discipline called the counters. When they finished it, they had to bring in up to three different special rabbis at three different times. And they would count every single letter. They knew exactly in Leviticus 13.33, no, 11.42, where the center letter was. They'd count 159,442, is it? 402 letters. Knowing the next one better be this, but they can't use a scroll. And then it would start there. And it would count every single letter to the end of the scroll. To make sure there was, I know, no, I got two minutes left. 152,402 and a better in, or they can't use it. And sometimes I said it would take up to a year or two to find where they left out one or added one, whatever, to get the exactness of it. Then they would do, they'd do that three different times. Could you see? You just counted 79,820, or was it 21? No, it's 20. No, it's 20. You start all over again. Then they would count every single word because they knew. In uh, Leviticus 13.33 is a center word of what, about 79,000 words? Is it 79,847 words? They knew exactly what the center word was. They would count it and the mother would be there. Folks, what other scripture in all history did they do that? None. We can hold the scriptures in our hands. And with confidence say, thus saith the Lord. The reason I got so excited about this, it was studying scrolls like this that I set out to refute Christianity to make a joke of the Bible. And it was scrolls like this that brought me to Christ. And I remember years ago saying, oh Lord, I pray someday I could have a scroll to teach from. Now i got three of them, I'm going to have four pretty soon. Folks, you can come up here, here's some parchment, animal skin, this is, 
This is sheep. The darker one, the lighter one is animal. You think it'd be the other way around. Uh, you can, you're free to handle those, whatever. Um, you can handle this. If you, be very careful with fear because it could slip out like that and ruin it. But you can open up, roll it up a little, and see how they did that. So exact with that. And folks, back there are several books that can help you. One, the New Evidence Man's a Verdict, that contains much of this in it. Because it's what I try to write against Christianity uh, for it. And then the new one out, 77 Frequently Asked Questions About God. I took the toughest ones ever had, joined up with my son, and wrote it on an 8th grade level. For Horizon, 10th grade level. <laughs> and then the Bible Handbook of Difficult Verses. We took 200, some of the most difficult verses. Most Christians just jump over. There's no answer. And we documented step by step in an eighth grade level the answer. Folks, you're welcome to come up here at the break. Do not touch the text. Why? Look at your iPhone. See how dirty the front is where you touch it? That's where you do the text. Now, there's nothing wrong with text because this is not a sacred one. Because of, they re-inked it. See, they couldn't afford a new one. So once a year they bring in a scribe and they re-ink it. And so as a result, it should have been buried. When it starts to fade, they had to bury them. But... This one, they couldn't afford a new one, so they re-ink it, re-ink it, re-ink it. So this is considered by Jew an unsacred scroll. Now, at the beginning it wasn't. But I ask you just to touch the margin. And there's magnifying glasses there. There's things here to tell you what they mean and all. But I ask you, absolutely, please, no liquid whatsoever, no food, no purses. I've had two different women get so excited. Oh, they put their purse right down on it to pick up. Please, this thing is so rare and so valuable. And, but I just want Christians to have the experience of seeing it, how God preserved it. And I remember the first time I touched it, I went, oh, you've got to be kidding. That's animal skin tied together by the muscle of the legs of a calf. These, these things are 550 years old and still totally intact. Next time you open your scriptures... Just think a little bit about what you heard tonight, what God did to preserve that truth with integrity for 3,000 years. Thank you. God bless. This one, if you want to look at it, I, will. I just got it. It just arrived to me yesterday. I will open it up for it if you want to see it. I'm a little too scared to let everybody just do it. <laughs> Well, thanks, Josh, for being here. Um, yeah, we're going to give you a chance to come up and look at this in just a second. Uh, if you're interested in some of the books he mentioned, there's a book table out by the fireplace. You can check that out with a lot of those questions. Um, if you, for those who come regularly, you know that one of the things we do at our equipping service is we go verse by verse through the Bible, studying it. One of the reasons we do that approach in our equipping service is because we believe every jot, every tittle, everything uh, is, is from God's Word. So we have a series starts next week called Man Up, Leadership Lessons in First Kings. We're actually going to be look, going verse by verse through the uh, book of First Kings and studying some of the leaders uh, during that time. We also have an Easter service coming up. So if you enjoyed maybe inviting a friend or maybe you're here for the first time tonight, uh, we have an Easter service coming up. We have seven services uh, this year, so 2.30, 4.30, 6.30, and then we're going to have an Easter egg hunt between those services on Saturday. So that's a little different this year. So 2.30, 4.30, 6.30, and an Easter egg hunt between the two. Uh, I know this is a great opportunity to invite friends, maybe to an Easter egg hunt. Many of us did that last year. Even more so this year, because not only are we looking for Easter eggs out here, but we have a helicopter coming to drop Easter eggs out there in the middle of it. So you do not want to miss the drop that's happening this year. 
And then on Sunday, we're going to have uh, services at 8.50, uh, at uh, 10, 11, and then we're going to add one this year uh, at 12.20. So that's a seven services this year for you to be part of. Let me see. That it, um, oh, and then tonight at 7 o'clock, so it's 5.30 now, 7 o'clock tonight, Josh is going to be with us again. So if you want to grab some dinner and come back, Josh will be speaking here tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, specifically talking about parenting, doing a parenting workshop. How do we teach these values to our kids? How do we uh, take the principles that he's learned with his kids and taught his kids into our families as well? So let me close this in prayer, and let's just uh, give one. After we're done, we'll give Josh one more thanks. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you did to preserve it for us. Thank you that your truth brings freedom. For where there is, uh, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And you told us only the truth can set us free. And the world that wonders what truth is, a world that wonders if we can trust the Bible, a world that thinks that uh, it's all a telephone game and we have no idea what the accuracy, Father, I thank you that we can trust with absolute certainty that the Scripture, the words that we have before us, are a very special word from you to us, the maker of the universe. God, you want us to love you, to know you, and to know how to live life in freedom and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we give Josh one more thanks? Josh, thanks for being here tonight. So you are dismissed. If you want to go to the book table, you can. If you want to come up here and grab a magnifying glass, feel free to do that too. We'll see you at 7 o'clock tonight.